We're in 2 Samuel chapter 6 this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 6. Um, This text doesn't need any introduction to hold your attention, so we're going to skip the introductions and jump right in. 2 Samuel chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. If one of you guys could grab that door. Thanks. It says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Okay, so there's a picture of the ark of the covenant or what you know what we what it might have looked like um the most holy object in the nation of Israel at this time David intends to bring this ark to his new capital city he knows that the ark represents the presence of God and he later calls it the footstool Of God, recognizing that God is the one true king over Israel. David knows himself to only be a servant of God who is the real king. And so his intent in moving the ark to establish that fact, that was good. It was a good intention on David's part. Okay, verse 3. And they carry the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. Now, despite their good intentions, they are already doing things completely the the wrong way. Um, There are two problems here. The first is that the ark was only supposed to be carried by a particular family of Levites known as the Kohathites. And we're told that Uzzah and Ahio are not sons of Kohathites. They are sons of Abinadab. Second, they placed the ark on a cart. And it doesn't matter that the cart was brand new, which is interesting that they tell us that. But the ark was actually supposed to be carried with poles on the shoulders of the Kohathites. Remember the picture, the poles going through. That's that's how they're supposed to carry it. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to us, but apparently it was a very big deal to God. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines, castanets and cymbals, And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And again, he's got the best intentions. What is he trying to do? He's trying to keep the ark of God from falling on the ground. He was being careful and attentive. But as R.C. Sproul once said, the presumptuous sin of Uzzah was this. He assumed 
that his hands were less polluted than the dirt. Verse 7. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. So the band stops playing. The people stop singing. The procession comes to a halt because God just struck a man dead for touching the ark. And it didn't matter what his intentions were. And it was such an important, powerful event in the history of Israel that they actually give that location a name. This is the place where God broke out against Uzzah. And David was angry because the Lord broke out against Uzzah. That word broke out, the same root word is used four times in chapter 5, verse 20, to describe God breaking out against His enemies, the the Philistines. So what this means is that God is dangerous even with His own people. He is not safe. This was God's breaking point. They were handling the ark all wrong. Uzzah touching it was simply the last straw. It was God's literal breaking point. Now the question that we all ask when we come to this text, if you've heard this story before, we really we want to ask, why did God kill Uzzah? And instead, we should be asking the question, why didn't God kill the entire assembly? He had every right to do so. They had broken all the rules. And so God was actually being very gracious with everyone else, including David. Uzzah became the object of God's wrath in order to teach His people an important lesson. God is holy, and He takes worship very seriously. Tim Chester writes, God is not there for us. We are here for Him. He is not there for us. We are here for Him. And God is not okay with us inventing ways to worship Him. Which is why many Christians feel more comfortable approaching God in a way that is trying to be respectful to His holiness, which we sang about this morning. Verse 9. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. David was so troubled 
by this incident that he stops the party, he cancels his plans, he goes home angry and afraid without the ark, and maybe that was for the best. This event changed David, and and maybe what he needed was to go home and get his heart right. Maybe he needed to take some time reflecting on God's word and reading Levitical laws before trying something like this again. Verse 11, the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now notice that the ark is not a curse unless it's handled incorrectly. The ark was always meant to be a blessing to God's people. It represented his presence with them. And so David has a change of heart. Verse 12, it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. And so David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. So has David... Has this been enough time? Has he learned his lesson? Was three months enough for him to get this right the second time? Verse 13. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Notice the ark is now being carried. Notice also that David adds sacrifices, which were, as far as I can tell, completely unnecessary. God never said anything about sacrificing when he carried the ark. But at least it seems to demonstrate that David now understood how serious this was. Something has changed. And now we're ready to read the rest of the story. Verse 14. And David danced... Before the Lord with all his might. Okay, so I don't know how to picture that. Just picture that in your minds. David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. And so David and all the house of Israel brought up the Lord, the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of a horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and they set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, He blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people a whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. And then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How... The king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, 
It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child until the day or to the day of her death. And that's chapter 6. Now, this is um, obviously a really fascinating story. And um, incidentally, it reminds me of the plot of the 1984 movie Footloose. Anybody seen Footloose? Um, you got some teenagers trying to have a prom, but the town has a law that they can't dance, and the minister is going to uphold that law. Nobody's dancing in my town, right? Um, and so uh, it, it bears some striking resemblance. Uh, Michael has a problem with David's dancing because why? Because it was indecent. That's what she says, right? And listen. Far as I can tell, she's technically right. Dancing and leaping and whirling around in nothing but a linen ephod was almost certainly immodest. <laughs> and so um, we're going to pause here for just a minute because this is a question that comes up a lot when you come to this text and um, you think about modern churches. It's a good opportunity for us to talk about dancing in worship. Many churches today teach that dancing is not an appropriate form of worship because it's not mentioned specifically in Colossians chapter 3 verse 16 and because God never gave specific instructions in the Bible concerning dancing in worship. The apostle Paul does give instructions for public worship in 1 Corinthians 14. You can go there and read and what you'll find is that dancing is not mentioned. And at the end of the chapter, Paul says that everything the church does publicly should be done decently and in order. And that's why a lot of churches don't dance. However, Psalm 149 specifically mentions Dancing as a form of worship. And whatever David and the people were doing in 2 Samuel 6 was clearly an act of worship. Notice, however, it was not a performance. And it's also not something that they did every time they got together. This was a bit of a special circumstance. In fact, David makes it clear to Michael that his dancing was not for the eyes of the people. It was not to be seen by others. Who was it for? It was for God. Michael's concern is, what will everyone else think? David's concern was, what will God think? Okay, so in light of all this, and again, this is just a side note, but I think it's important to say, because we're a church that has many different backgrounds and cultures worshiping together, and I would urge us to be charitable with our brothers and sisters in Christ 
who do come from other backgrounds and other cultures where dance is used more commonly as a Christian expression of worship. And if it is not a performance, then it's probably not out of bounds. Okay? But that's not the main point of the text. What we have here are two stories side by side in chapter 6 for a reason. And so the question we have to ask is, why did the writer tell us this? What do the stories of Uzzah and Michael teach us about God when we read them together? And I think the question that David asks in verse 9 and his response to God That's the key. Now, do you remember the question that he asks? He said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? How can the ark of the Lord come to me? If if God is so holy that one error deserves death, how? Can I handle the things of God at all? But at the same time, David knows God is so good and He's so full of blessing and He is so deserving of our praise. He just he can't resist, right? And so there's this dilemma. He, he puts it off for three months, but then he just can't help himself. And so these two things are side by side. And David says, I will be humiliated in my own eyes, but I will celebrate before the Lord. In other words, I think what the text is teaching us is this. There is a place for both reverence and joy in our worship. And I think David captures this perfectly in Psalm 2. Verse 11, where he writes, Rejoice with trembling. Rejoice with trembling. The joy of the Lord and the fear of the Lord coexist in our worship as His church. But do they? Do they? Is this how we approach God when we worship? Is this how we think of God at all? And so I want you to think with me. How would you personally, how would you evaluate your own worship? What happens in your heart when you come to worship? Or when you... Worship Him on your own, kind of in your, in your heart and in your mind when you're out in the world. What does that look like? Does it look like rejoice with trembling at all? Of this passage, uh, there's a commentator named W.G. Blakey. He said this, There are times to be calm, and there are times to be enthusiastic. But can it be right to give all our coldness to Christ and all our enthusiasm to the world? Now, most of us in this room, 
don't really care who wins the Super Bowl tonight. I mean, not very many people really are Bengals fans, right? And I know a few Rams fans, again, not many. Um, Most of us really don't care who wins the game tonight. But if you enjoy watching football, then you're probably going to pick a team to cheer for. Am I right? You're going to pick somebody because you like their colors or I don't know why. Um, Because it's more fun that way, right? And some of us get really enthusiastic about sports even when we really shouldn't care that much. The same men who will shout praises to a grown man carrying a leather ball across an imaginary line will stand quietly in worship, barely whispering a hymn. That cannot be right. It just can't be. That can't be right. I mean, it cannot be right that we get more excited about sports than Jesus. Something is wrong with us. And for many of us, the pandemic has been a season of just drifting further and further away, right? And we desperately need to recapture even what was not great before, right? But, but the joy of worship and the joy of fellowship with other believers and the joy of our salvation. But this is not something that we can manufacture. I cannot change your heart. I can't even change my own heart. But brothers and sisters, we dare not walk into the presence of a holy God under the pretense of worship and give Him half-hearted praise. And yet that's exactly what we do. We dare not. And we do it every Sunday. And if that's not convicting, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to say. I don't, it's convicting to me. And all I can do is ask myself the same question that David asked himself. How can the ark of the Lord come to me? How can the presence of the Lord come to me? How can I come to worship as your pastor and stand here in the pretense of worship of the holy God, the holy of holies? There's a clue in our text. Did you catch it? David attempted to move the ark twice in our story. And did you notice that something died during both attempts? Uzzah, of course, tragically died the first time. A lot of animals died the second time. How can the presence of the Lord come to me? The answer is through sacrifice. And that's where we find the gospel today. How can the presence of God come to sinners like us? 
How can God remain holy and choose to show mercy at the same time? How can I walk into the presence of a holy God on Sunday mornings and act like my heart is all in when it's not and not be struck down by God's holy wrath? Only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's the only way. And even though David had no way of understanding it at the time, somehow this box that should have been his curse was instead his blessing. And only God could make that happen by His grace. God does not accept us, brothers and sisters, on the quality or the quantity of our worship. He accepts us based only on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we could ask Uzzah, you know, brother, why were you so worried about the cart when everyone else was worshiping? We could ask Michael, why were you so worried about David's dancing when everyone else was worshiping? And a lot of times that's what's going on in the church, right? We're looking down our noses at each other, judging everybody else's religion. Why do you raise his hand? Why isn't that person singing? Why are we so disengaged and disinterested from God and His Word and His church? What is it that God wants from us this morning? I just want to end with some of David's words in Psalm 51. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise for You will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are so much holier than we give you credit for. You are perfect in in power and glory and deserving of all honor and praise. And the half-hearted nonsense that we bring in offering is, is dirt apart from Christ. But even as you break us and convict us under the weight of your holiness, I pray that we would remember your gospel. That we would turn to Christ and repent. And it would be more than words. That our love for you and for others would grow. And as we rejoice with trembling in the presence of our God, the Ancient of Days, 
We ask for your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.